Mark chapter 3. Here's where we're at in the gospel of Mark. We are traveling through Mark. I love the gospels, so this is like super fun for me. So here's where we're at in the gospels. The book of James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says this. He says that God's word is like this. It's like a mirror. But then he says there's a problem, though, because you can use God's words like this, like a man that looks in a mirror, forgets the problem that he saw, and walks away unchanged. Notice it says a man that looks in the mirror and walks away, not a woman, because women do not forget. They take care of whatever problem they saw right then, right? Think about it, ladies. How many mirrors have you encountered just this morning? Right? There was the first mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall. It's the mirror that you looked at right when you got out of bed and you surveyed eight hours of sleep and the damage it did to you. Like, ugh. Then it's the vanity mirror because you need a 360-degree view of that damage. 45 minutes later, it's the full-length mirror where you behold the glory, right? Because men glance and women gaze, right? And then you come to church and it's mirrors four and five. It's the rear view mirror that you take away from the driver. And then it's your visor mirror because you need stereo vision for this. And then lastly, as you're walking in, it's the pocket purse mirror to make sure that eyebrow is staying tamed. Men, men don't have pocket purse mirrors. If you do, repent, okay? James would say, we all need to be like women, that we need to allow God's word to be this mirror that we don't walk away unchanged, we respond to it. That when we see something that's out of place, we respond. So we're in the book of Mark right now in this little section where we see change happening, where Jesus has a mission to change. And he changes the crowd to disciples, and we'll talk about that today. And then he changes sinners into family. We'll talk about that next time. It's brilliant. Let's jump in. Check this out. Verse 7, Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is the crowd. Great crowds are coming out to see Jesus. And I got to paint the picture here because we're 2,000 years removed from Israel and from the geography, right? Like, does anyone know where Tyre and Sidon are? Like up the top of your head. Oh yeah, I know where those places are. Probably doubtful. Maybe one person has memorized an ancient map of Israel, but most of us are just like, what are these places? Well, here's what you got to know. Tyre and Sidon 
are a hundred miles away from Jerusalem and Judea, which means people are walking 100 miles to come and see Jesus. That's a five-day journey one way. It's a 10-day hike to come and see Jesus. Who here would hike for 10 days to come to church? Right? Well, Matt, you are not Jesus, okay? (laughs) Valid, no doubt. Totally. What would you hike 10 days for? A duck football game? I won't even ask about the beavers because I won't drive three hours for a beaver football game. Like, yeah, I'll just watch it on TV. Forget it. All right? For your kids, for your family, like, this is dedication. You're supposed to kind of see that like, wow, that is amazing that someone would walk that far. Secondly, Jerusalem and Judea are Jewish areas. Tyre and Sidon are Gentile areas. And the other places are like these multicultural places. So what's being told to the ancient reader is this, Jesus cuts across all ethnic, race, geographic areas, that he is so compelling, he's drawing people from every different part of the land to himself. How brilliant is that? Now, why are they coming to Jesus? Are they coming saying, you are the Messiah, you are the king, and we submit to you? No, look at verse eight again. I have it written out. Great crowds heard all that he was doing and they came to him. And then if you read a little bit more down to verse 10, it's they wanted something from Jesus. Do something for us, right? I think a lot of times that's the way we treat Jesus. And we treat him like Walmart. Avoid him like the plague until we are desperate and then we go shopping for whatever we need, right? Like a lot of people get serious about their faith, get serious about church. They start coming when? When things are falling apart, when their kids are in rebellion, when their marriage is in shambles, when their health is deteriorating, when their money is gone, when they're addicted to something. And part of that is good, right? We're to die to sin, no doubt. That's good. And we know this. We know sin's killing us in some way. These drugs are killing me. Meth is killing me. Pornography is killing me. My marriage is dying. I don't like this anymore. I want some change, right? So it's, you realize how bad this is. So you come to Jesus like, hey, save me from this problem. That's what the crowd does. But the crowd is not coming to surrender to the king, to die to themselves, to submit to him, to know I was bought for a price, therefore I'm going to glorify Jesus in my body. It's not sold out to Jesus. It's the self-help Jesus. It's not submission to the Father. It's serve me somehow, serve my needs, that this sin is killing me, it's destroying me, and I want it to stop. That's why they're coming. And I mention that because this crowd is going to change. If you follow the gospels, you know that right now the great crowds are coming and they're like, yeah, they're admiring Jesus. But by John chapter six, read that chapter. The crowd stop following him. They get disenchanted by Jesus, by his words. And this same crowd that had traveled a hundred miles one way to come visit him, this same crowd at the end of the gospels, they're going to chant, crucify him. 
They go from admirers walking hundreds of miles to Jesus to crucify him, kill him. Now, why does that happen? I think there's two reasons. Number one, Jesus doesn't let you be neutral. Jesus doesn't let you just admire him. Either he is king of all and you will submit to him or you reject him categorically. And we'll talk about that more because you see that in the following passages. It's one or the other. But the second reason is, I think it's human nature. That human nature does this all the time. I have a statement written down at home. It's this, admiration without relation is like milk. It always spoils and goes sour. Think about your own life. Was there someone that you really admired for a while? They're, whatever they had, they had something that you admired them, but it was from afar. You didn't have a relationship with them. And then they did something you didn't like. And so now it's soured. And you're like, ugh, I don't like them anymore. In fact, I think the higher pedestal you put somebody on from a distance, admiring them, the harder they fall and the more you reject them and the more you almost hate them because it's like, ugh, mm. That's what happens when you admire someone from far. Eventually, they do something, John chapter six, that you don't like, and you reject them. I would just say this, have a lot of grace for people. We rarely know the full story. We rarely know everything that's going on. Have a lot of grace for people. I've never regretted being graceful for people, never. So this crowd here has this, you know, following. They want Jesus to do something. And out of this crowd, Jesus is going to select some people to become disciples. And that's my hope, that we're not just a crowd trying to use Jesus for our own ends, but we're followers of Jesus, not just admirers from afar, followers that are close. So check this out. Here's what happens. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Once again, cultural. Reading this list 200 years ago would be shocking. Here's why. He chooses Matthew. We know him as Levi. He's the tax collector. He's the betrayer. He's the guy that turned on his own country and his own people. He's the guy that fattened his wallet by stealing it from you and your neighbors. He was hated, Matthew the tax collector. But also, Simon the zealot. The zealots were a small group of people who had one goal, overthrow Rome. They were stockpiling guns and ammunition. They were making raids. They were the crazies, right? Who might have a problem getting along, right? It'd be like Dr. Atlas and Dr. Fauci becoming roommates. Who might have a problem with each other, right? 
And I think Jesus selects these two and is like, you guys are sharing a tent, figure it out. I love this because if you look at these guys, they're outsiders in their community, right? Outsiders on one side and outsiders on the other side. They're outsiders. They're the ones that were pegged. They're not the middle. They're not the good, right? In fact, almost all of these guys are Galileans, except for one, Judas. They're all outsiders. Now, I mention that because we have this way, every culture does, every world does, of deciding who's outside and who's inside, don't we? You go to school as a kid. It does not take you long to figure out who the cool kids are and who the geeks are, right? There's just ways that that is just made known to you really quick, and you're immediately kind of put in one of these categories. We have ways of like deciding if people's jobs are in or out, right? You're a contractor, okay, you're in. You're a plumber who keeps a belt on, you are in. Oh, you're a bud tender? Ooh, that's a little sketchy. Not sure about that, right? We always have these markers. 2,000 years ago, the way that you could tell someone was inside or out was real easy because the Jews had a diet, the food you ate. Decide if you're inside or out. The language that you would speak, was it Bible speak, would tell people if you were inside or out. The way that you dressed would tell people if you were inside or out, right? Did you know that they would wear these things called a phylactery, a tefillin, another name for it, whereas literally you would put these leather straps on and bind the scripture to you Because Deuteronomy says, keep the Bible as a frontlet on your head and on your arm. So check out this picture, right? That's a phylactery. That little box has scripture in it, and the one on his arm has scripture on it. Now, you could easily tell walking down the street, okay, he is an observant Jewish man, that he is on the inside. It's very easy to tell who is in and who is out. Don't we do the same thing, though, as Christians? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody when you're asking like, hey, I don't know if that guy is saved or not. Now, why would we have that conversation? Because we're looking at outward markers to see, is this guy inside or is this guy outside? Right? I just don't know if he is. Well, why not? Well, I, had, I saw him have a beer with his pizza. I'm just not sure. I know he goes to church, but he drives a Maserati. I'm just not sure. Right? We have all these markers. I say that because as we read through this gospel, what you're going to see is Jesus is constantly tearing down the outward markers and saying that is not the gospel, that the gospel is actually about movement. Are you moving from the crowd to becoming a disciple? What's your movement, right? That these outsiders that that culturally would say, ah, they're on the outside. Jesus says, I'm actually selecting them as disciples because they're moving towards me. And Judas Iscariot, who is the only insider, he's the only one from Jerusalem, he'd be educated, he'd look it. He's actually, even though he is at the table with Jesus, his heart is moving away from Jesus, step by step by step. And he's actually going to join the crowd that says crucify him in the end. So it's not at all about outward stuff. It's about the movement of my heart. And so I can always evaluate myself. Am I moving toward Jesus, my affections growing for him, or am I moving away from Jesus? Because that really tells me, am I moving toward the crowd or am I moving toward becoming a disciple? That's the question, right? So 
Second thing God knows culturally is the kind of people Jesus selected. These are not the best. It gives me such hope that Jesus still chooses people to serve him and be his disciples that are not the best people, right? We'll read and we'll see like these guys are crazy. James just forgets what Jesus' mission is. He's like, let's call down fire and burn this entire village up. Jesus is like, what in the world? Who are you? Peter is always starting fights with Jesus, right? You're like, dude, come on, figure it out, right? They all lack faith. I love that. Because I think Jesus is still in the business of using people unlikely, outsiders, the ones you would never expect. They're the ones that Jesus says, I'll use them. I'll use them, right? Like the thing that I always marvel at about God is this, that he's using me. That he's using me. I'm just like, what in the, why would you use me? You know me. Why in the world would you use me, God? I marvel at that. I know people have opinions of me and sometimes they share them with me on email and I appreciate that, right? <laughs> and like you always and you never and you do this and you don't do that. And they kind of have all their stuff and, and I read them and I always think, well, I mean, who in the world told you this? I am so much worse than that. Are you kidding me, Right? You don't know half of it yet. I marvel. I marvel that God would use me. It gives me great hope because he still uses people like this, okay? So I want you to notice something real quick here. Three things the disciples do as they move out of the crowd into not just admiring Jesus, but following him. And then four things that Jesus does for the disciples. And he does it for you and me to this day. And it's what transforms us. It's what changes us. It's the mirror that we reflect into and we're made into his image, all right? So disciples, number one, notice this. Number one, they follow him. Seems simple. Jesus, verse 13, looks at the crowd, calls some people out and the disciples say, okay, let's go. They move toward Jesus. They follow him, right? And we've seen that now a couple of times. Calls some people out of the boats. He calls Simon out of the, or he calls Levi out of the tax booth. They follow him. They leave their nets. They leave family. They leave sinful lifestyles. They leave. And Jesus is going to take them from the crowd and change them into disciples. Now, how does he do that? I think here's how. The crowd found Jesus to be useful. Jesus, do something for me. I walked a long distance. I want you to do so. I've sacrificed for you. I've done this. Now, Jesus, repay me. Do something. Jesus is useful. The disciples, though, they never do that. Instead, they drop nets. They leave tax collecting, betrayal, and they just follow him. Because I think they found Jesus beautiful. It's Psalm 27.4, that the beauty of the Lord be upon us. They're not admirers so much. They are, hey, Jesus is compelling. He's compelling, right? Do you know how powerful that is? That what actually moves us isn't necessarily utilitarian stuff, usefulness. What actually moves us is beauty, passion for it. Man, I'll try to give you an example. Who finds this car beautiful? Anyone? 
right? Is the car useful? Oh, yeah, right? You can go to Medford and back on one gallon of fuel. Think about that, right? You're not doing that in your giant diesel spewing, dually grow bro truck. You're not doing it in that thing. And we've all seen them around, okay? At the gas stop, they let off a cloud that's about two gallons of fuel. So not doing that. So totally useful, but beautiful? Yeah, no, not at all. Okay, how about this one? Oh, <laughs> man. I look at that and my kids are for sale. <laughs> how much will you give me for Myron, right? <laughs> Which one's better? Which one's more dependable, right? The Prius, you get 400,000 miles without a problem. That, 40 miles with problems. But it's beautiful. And it moves me. And I'll do anything for it. It's beauty. Man, the world doesn't run on utilitarian stuff. The world runs on something else, passion. That's what it runs on, okay? So I can evaluate my heart very often. And it's, am I doing this? for Jesus because I'm trying to get at his trust fund? I'm trying to use him for my thing? Or am I doing this because Jesus is beautiful and he has moved me and he's powerful and that's what I do and this is how I'm doing it, right? So the disciples, the disciples, they follow. They're compelled, why? Because Jesus is so compelling to them and they drop everything, not because of what he's gonna do for them, but because he just is. They follow. Number two, they're sent. Jesus sends them. They have a mission. You and I, the Bible says this, Ephesians 2.10, that God has created good works for every single believer in him, that we're to walk in those good works. We're to be sent out on mission. We're all missionaries. We're all ambassadors. We're all supposed to be salt and light. We're all supposed to be active in good works. That's what we're supposed to be. We're disciples. And what I found is this. In years and years and years and years, 25 years now of ministry, I found the people that stopped being disciples and seemed to kind of step back into the crowd are typically people that have no mission. They're like, well, why am I doing this again? Why am I here? And they seem to kind of step by step by step, stop following, stop discipling, stop doing that, and they go back into the crowd. We're all supposed to have some kind of mission. I don't know what my mission is supposed to be. How do I know what God has me to do? How do I know my giftings? I'll give you two ways of evaluating. Number one, I call it joy squared. When I'm doing what God has me to do, it's supposed to bring joy to me. That does not mean it's gonna be easy. Some of the hardest things I've ever done have become the most joyful things I've ever done. So I'm not talking easy, but joy. And then number two, it brings joy to the people around you when you're doing it. Because there are some things that I love to do that people hate it when I do it. That's probably not God's gift for me. It's joy for you and joy for other people that when you do it, people say, I love it when you do that. You're gifted in that. That's awesome. It's amazing. God has gifted you that way. Joy squared. And so you try tons of stuff and you tell you find that joy squared. Number two is this. I think we're supposed to be like Caleb's walking around that land that God has given to us, Grant's Pass, Josephine County, Jackson County, wherever. And we're supposed to be praying, where's the mountain with the giant on it? 
Do you know that there's mountains with giants on it in Grants Pass? There are giant problems facing our community right now. Well, we are supposed to say, hey, we're sent out. We're missionaries. We're ambassadors. We're salt and light. Where's the mountain with the giant on it? Or to have eyes open and saying, maybe I could be the one that slays that giant. And there are tons of ways to do this. Like I would love to have Jesus following disciples filling our school boards, filling our city councils, filling every avenue. Why? Because the Bible says when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. There's great joy when Jesus' disciples are involved in those kind of things. So man, that's one. And it can just go on and on and on, right? You're praying, eyes open, show me mountains with giants on it. And you say, okay, maybe this is what I'm called to do. Be involved in this way, right? Mission, they were sent. They had mission. And then number three, they preached. These two go hand in hand. You're sent, good works, no doubt. Sent to be salt and light, no doubt. But we're sent also to tell people, about our king, to give this compelling mission of the life of Jesus and how it has transformed us. And I think the church has lost a little bit of this because now we think, oh, we just do good things and that's it. But we don't really tell people about Jesus in the process. It's like something got lost. And it tracks back to a quote, probably misattributed to St. Francis of C.C., where he says this, preach always, and if necessary, use words. Or he's saying, just live out the good works and then you won't have to say anything. Well, I don't think so. I don't think it works like that, right? I don't think it works at all like that. They go hand in hand. So wives, let me just ask you this. Do you like it when your husband does good works? When he does your honeydew list, fixes the stuff that's broken, right? Do you like it when he does that? Yeah. Okay, so let's say you have a husband that does your honeydew list all the time, but never talks to you. Would that work? Well, you should know I love you. I'm doing all these things. I'm fixing all the broken stuff. Would you be like, well, okay, that's good. Yeah, true. No, right? Do you also love when your husband says, you are beautiful and I love you? Do you like it when your husband says that? Can he say that more often to you? You can thank me afterwards. It's both. We're supposed to be doing good works, no doubt, salt and light, and also preaching the good news. Romans 10, 14 says this, how shall they believe unless someone preach? It doesn't say, how shall they believe unless someone does good works? It says, how shall they believe unless somebody preaches, proclaims the good news of the risen king who's coming back and gonna set things right? We proclaim that. Right? So disciples follow. They're sent on mission and they preach good news. That's our part. Look what Jesus does. This is where it's even better. Number one, Jesus appoints. Now, there's no English word that does this word service. So I'm gonna give you the Greek word. Here's the Greek word. Appointed in the Greek is epoison. This is what it means. It's not selecting, it's not, it's to cause, it's causal. To cause someone, this is just, I, I copied this dic, the, the definition from a Greek dictionary. To cause someone to assume a particular type of function. 
Jesus wasn't selecting these guys and hoping that they would become disciples and apostles. Jesus was going to make them, cause them to become apostles. I love that because he still does that today. Well, how does he do that? How does he take these crowded people, these ignorant fishermen? How does he do that through these outsiders? How does he make them into apostles? Well, he does three things. Number one, he says, you are with me. It's life on life. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm appointing you to a weekly meeting with me. We'll get together for an hour and talk. He doesn't say, okay, I'm appointing you to come to some classes that I'm going to teach. No. He doesn't say, hey, I'm appointing you to this kind of job where we'll work together for a little while. No, what does he say? You are going to be with me. It's relationship. You're gonna eat with me. You're gonna walk with me. You're gonna talk with me. You're gonna view me. You're gonna be with me. Relationship, friendship, right? It's so much different than knowing something, isn't it? You can know all kinds of facts about marriage. Like you can be single and you can study marriage. You can find all the facts about marriage. You can memorize the very important one-liners that work in marriage, like, honey, I'm sorry. Most important one-liner, right? Or it's okay to drink out of the container. I don't care. Or honey, you're not lost. You found a shortcut. Write that one down. You will need that at some point. Now, you can memorize all those. You can have all the facts about marriage, but is that marriage? No. Marriage is experiencing marriage. That's the joy of marriage. It's experiencing it, right? So what Jesus is saying is, I'm not giving you a bunch of facts. I'm not sending you to school. I'm taking you with me. You will be with me. And the Bible hints that there is an experience with God. Just read Psalm 63 if you get a chance. Psalm 63 says, there's an experience with God that transcends your head. It's relationship. You get these glimpses of that from people that have experienced that. I'll give you a couple. Who here has heard of Brother Lawrence? Google him at some point. Not now. (laughs) He wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. It's 400 years old. I read it in 1997. In that book, he is a dishwasher. That's all he is. And he starts writing these letters to somebody that wants to know about the faith. And he talks about the incredible relationship he has with God. It's amazing. Like I'll quote one thing. He says this, I have had thoughts about God that are so delicious, I'm ashamed to write them. I'm almost ashamed to quote it because it sounds a little dirty. I'm like, hmm, what in the world? <laughs> right? But it's that. He's, he, uh, uh, this relationship. Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, scientist, He had some encounter with God. He didn't tell anyone about it. The only reason we know about it is because he wrote it and he actually sewed it into his coat. And when he died, they took off his clothes and, you know, got him ready for burial. And they found this written out diary entry of this event he had with God where he just says, fire, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just talks about this incredible experience he had with God. Jonathan Edwards, maybe America's most important theologian, the one guy that we produced that really changed theology. Amazing guy. Jonathan Edwards, not a charismatic guy, right? He is not the guy that's gonna take anointing oil and slap it on your forehead and pray in tongues over you for 27 minutes until you just pass out. He's not that dude. 
In fact, he was so, he would read his messages in a flat voice. Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. You know why he did that? Because he said, I do not want to move people by my own passion. I want people to be moved by the passion of God's spirit alone. And so he would force himself to just be like, okay, today, turn to Mark chapter three. I'm forced, and he's the guy that sparked the great awakening. Why? Well, he had this habit every day. He'd get on a horseback. He'd go out into the woods, and he would pray. One day, he went out there, and he said, I met God. God met me in that forest, and it transformed him. Like, there is this with God experience that you and I are supposed to be desiring. Moses, at 80 years old, Exodus 33, hey, show me your face. Kill me or show me your face. Like at 80, he wants that experience with God. So it's with him. How are we transformed? By being with Jesus. Number two, authority. Authority. He says, I give you authority over demons. So if you've been with us in Mark, you know that we have hit on demons almost every single week because they're showing up all the time. Right? We just read about it in the crowd following. The demons came out, they're like, ah, you're Jesus. And he's like, be quiet, right? What we're supposed to be learning from this is this. Jesus has defeated the kingdom of darkness. And that if you are a believer in Jesus, you do not need to fear the kingdom of darkness anymore. That is, there's no fear there. That what Jesus did on Calvary, what he did on Calvary Kicked the teeth in. He is the skull crusher, right? Of Genesis chapter three. We'll talk more about that. He did that. And now you and I have been given the same authority over that kingdom. And because they've been defanged, the only power the kingdom of darkness has now, lies and deceit. So if you read the the final epistles in your Bible, it's all about beware of these lies. Beware of the doctrines of demons because they have no power now. I tell people this all the time. It takes no faith to believe the lies of a demon. What you're being, believing right now, whatever it is, that's a lie from the pit. Stop believing it. You have been given authority over the kingdom of darkness. And then lastly, he names them. It says he named them apostles. And then he literally changed a couple guys' names, right? Simon becomes Peter. James and John, they become the sons of thunder. What a great name. I wonder if Peter was like jealous. He's like, Peter, really? I mean, couldn't I get son of lightning or Magnus or something? (laughs) Jesus changes their names. Oh, big deal. What's the big deal about a name? Really? Parents, did you agonize over naming your kids? Why if it's just a name? Because we choose a name because we're saying, I hope this child fulfills every expectation I have in this name, right? Companies spend millions of dollars to name a product or to name their company because they realize how important a name is. Celebrities change their name. Why? Because they know how important a name is. I'll give you a test. Who here has heard of Mark Sinclair Vincent? Who here has heard of Vin Diesel? Yeah, why did he change his name? Because Mark Sinclair Vincent sounds like a CPA. 
It does not sound like someone driving a car really fast, okay? Who here has heard of Marion? This is my favorite. Marion Robert Morrison. Who is that? John Wayne. Why did John Wayne change his name? Because cowboys are not named Marion. It's just that simple. Maybe they are today. 50 years ago, you, didn't, you weren't Marion. Sorry, it just doesn't work, right? We know names matter. We do. But much more than that, in the Bible, when God names something, he literally means that's what it becomes. So if you read Genesis 1, you're supposed to take home something. That when God creates everything, does he think it into existence? Because he could have. Does he wish it into existence? Because he could have. Does he form it? Does he like form the sun with his hand? Because he could have. How does God bring everything into existence? Literally, he names it. Because when God says, let there be light, before he said that, guess what? There was no light. We wouldn't have a clue what light is. Light had no definition. Light had no name. So what does God say? I'm calling something light and it's going to become this thing. He literally names it and that is what it becomes. And you can read the rest of the Bible where God does that. He names and it becomes. That's what you and I are supposed to get from this. This is God, the son, naming. Meaning you will become what I name you. So you can feel ugly and unwanted. But Jesus comes and says, I desire you and you are beautiful. So guess what you become? Desired and beautiful. You can feel weak. But Jesus comes and says, you are strong, 1 Corinthians 12, 9. So guess what you are? Strong. You can feel like a failure. But Jesus says, you are an overcomer, Romans 8, 37. So guess what you are? An overcomer, because Jesus names it and it becomes. You can feel dirty and gross and sinful, but as Jesus says, Isaiah 1, 18, you are pure like wind-driven snow. You are blameless, Jude 24. Guess what you are? You're pure and you are blameless. That's what this is supposed to sink into our heads, that when Jesus names it, you become it. It's just that simple because he makes it. So what happens is these 12 guys, these unknown, uneducated, unsophisticated, uncool, unheralded, unconnected men. What's happened to their names? A bunch of kids in our kids' wing walk, run around with their names. A bunch of people across Oregon, in the United States, and America run around with their names, right? Their names have become great. Kings and Caesars have been forgotten, but not these 12 men. Their names live on in greatness. Why? Because Jesus made their names great. And Jesus says to you and me today, I'll make your name great. Your name will be written in my Lamb's book of life, and that name will never be taken away. And what I call you, you become, because that's what I do. See, we're supposed to read this, and our hearts are supposed to soar, and we're supposed to once again come back and say, Jesus, you're not useful to me. You're beautiful. And that's the power. This is what Jesus does for us. He's appointed you to become a king and a queen that rule and reign with him forever. 
He says, you're going to be with me. I've given you authority and your name is going to be great. How good is that? I'm telling you, you don't get a better deal than this. And every single week we come back to the table and we're reminded of this fact, Jesus is beautiful. Let him grab my heart afresh and keep me from all the chaos out there that wants to pull me in directions that kill me, steal, kill, and destroy me. So we take these elements in remembrance of him, his greatness, his power, him. And so Jesus today, we hold your body broken so that we might be healed. We hold your name despised and crushed so that our names would become great. We hold you who became weak so that we might be strong. We hold you who became disconnected so that we might be connected. Give us the faith to believe in the name that you've given to us. Let's eat together. We hold the cup, the cup of change, the cup where we repent and you cleanse and you cure and you make us into different kind of people. You take us from the crowd. You appoint us. You're with us. You give us authority and you give us names. Change us. Change us into your image. Let's drink together. Amen. So we'll sing one final song. After that song, you can be dismissed to enjoy a phenomenal day, free of smoke and a perfect temperature. But before you go, if you want prayer, there'll be people up here that'd love to pray for you. Nothing too small, nothing too big. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Or baptism. The Bible says, repent and be baptized. Stop being in the crowd. Come out and publicly identify as a child, named child of King Jesus. And maybe today is your day where you say, I want to be baptized. We'd love to join with that story that God is authoring in your life. So you can come right up here. Someone will meet you here and we'll baptize you. Would you stand for one final song? <laughs>